You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning. We wanted to just spend a little bit of time in a passage that's just meant to encourage your soul. (laughs) Turn to your neighbor and say, you were dead. Just kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) Um, It's good to see you all this morning. The season of Lent began this week with Ash Wednesday, and I would love to be able to tell you that we chose to spend time in this passage the first Sunday of Lent on purpose, but that actually was a fortunate coincidence rather than a stroke of my master genius. Um, Ash Wednesday begins this season known as Lent. Lent is a rhythm where we as a community or the church at large has the chance to embody the story of Jesus, the story that Ephesians presents us with. Ash Wednesday is primarily this uncomfortable and inconvenient reminder that you are, in fact, human, which means you will, in fact, die. It's also an opportunity for confession, which for a lot of us is an uncomfortable reality, right? Confession feels really, really scary. But confession is an opportunity It's an opportunity for us to acknowledge to ourselves and to God the lives that we actually live versus the lives that we pretend to live. Beyond that, it acknowledges that I am not immortal. Confession acknowledges I am not perfect. I am not God. Confession acknowledges that we at some level have contributed to the chaos of this world and the undoing of our lives and our neighbors' lives. It's an opportunity for us to be honest about this, with ourselves and with God, about the life that we've lived. And in that honesty, honesty, not find retribution, not find anger, not find judgment, but instead find mercy, love, grace, and acceptance. Not acceptance of the broken things that we've done, but acceptance of who we are as limited human beings. And that's really the message that I want to drive home this morning. Uh, We're going to weave down a couple of different paths this morning, but really what I want you to hear in all of this is that God actually really loves you, God is actually really for you, and in such a way that God has actually entered into history, entered into humanity, yes, even entered into sin and death for your behalf. That is God's disposition towards you as we explore this reality that you, in fact, like me, are a sinner. 
So this morning, I'm going to ask what may sound like an unrelated question as we talk about uh, this wonderful thing called sin. (laughs) But it's one that's actually tied to this pretty directly, and I've personally found really, really helpful. Um, As we've been listening to the story of Ephesians, it tells us the life that we're living, the story that we're living. Uh, If you, yep, if you click that sermon slide, those lights will come right back on, or they should. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, The question that I want to ask is this, is God really in control? Right now, now I know the church answer to that question, right? And I know that you all have the church answer to that question, or at least I think you all have the church answer to that question. If not, get out. Just kidding. Don't get out. You're actually really welcome here. And I'm actually going to give you a non-church answer to that question. I'm going to give you an Ephesians answer to that question, which might actually shock you. And at first, might even unsettle you. But if you'll stick with me, I hope you will find is actually really reassuring in the midst of all of this. Is God really in control? So we've been listening to the story of Ephesians. It's been telling us the story of this life, the story of the life of Jesus, this story that's meant to make sense of who we are and what we're supposed to be about in the world. We spent three weeks hearing Ephesians give us this broad, overarching sweep of what God is up to in this act of redemption through the person of Jesus. And now we're going to slow down as we enter the season of Lent, and we're going to spend the next several weeks leading up to Easter in chapters 2 and 3, where Ephesians will retell that story, but retell it slower, in detail, with nuance. And as we enter the season of reflection, Repentance and what I pray is a a deeper connection to Jesus for all of us. Ephesians slows down and tells us the story that we need to hear over and over and over again. And it begins like Lent began. It begins in ashes. It begins in sin and death. It begins with an uncomfortable and inconvenient reminder. One that many of us, if we're not brand new to this story of Jesus may have a complicated relationship with. The inconvenient, the uncomfortable notion that you are a sinner. Ephesians starts, or Ephesians chapter two starts like this. And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. Now, if you've grown up in church at any length, you probably know this passage very well. You've probably got it memorized. which is a good thing. The problem with that is a lot of times we hear this in certain ways that aren't actually ingrained in what the text itself is saying. So if this is the first time you've heard this text, you get to hear it in a way that many of us are probably pretty jealous of. For a lot of us, we're actually bringing to this text a lot of our own baggage from camps and retreats and sermons that we've heard in the past that have been some really helpful and some really harmful. So when I start talking about sin, there's going to be three groups of you in the room. The first group are those of you who are hearing this with like fresh ears, and I'm so thankful that you're here. And my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit would, uh, would allow you to hear from God this morning in a way that is encouraging to you, in a way that leads you to the feet of Jesus um, and leads you to, to know him more. The second group, there's many of you out there, you have been taught that you are born sinful, and because of that, you are something like this, a worthless piece of garbage. 
that God can't stand the sight of you, and unless God can, like, take out his, like, frustration and anxiety and angst on something else, he's going to take it out on you because, gosh, you just really tick him off. You're a worthless worm or a bug or a spider waiting to be crushed by God, right? So some of you have heard this version of the story, maybe not in those strong of terms, but something like that. And I want to offer you evidence from Ephesians that this is actually not what Ephesians or really what the New Testament witnesses to. That that is not actually God's disposition towards you. Lastly, there are those of us in the room who in response to the harmful theology, the untrue idea that God just can't wait to crush us, you have rejected the notion of personal sin altogether, or at least pushed it out of memory. That sin has become this like, I don't know, subjective thing that exists out there, and you have no real sin in your own life. And yet, Ephesians doesn't let us off the hook. Because Ephesians begins like this. You were dead in your offenses and sins. Not in the offenses of someone else. Not in the sins of the world, but your very own. And Ephesians makes us wrestle with this notion that somehow we have entrapped ourselves in this state of death. Welcome to Redemption. Happy Sunday. Glad you're here. There is a lot of hope in this, but to get to the hope, we have to realize why we need hope in the first place. So we start with death. And can I be honest? I I normally wear all black. I'm in mostly black today. Just trying to tone it down a little bit for y'all. But I don't think we think about death enough. Um, so I, we've got a newborn at home, and one of the benefits of having a newborn, um, one of the silver linings, if you will, is they wake up at all times of the night when no one else is awake, which frees you up to then watch whatever you would like on TV, right? You have to look at the positives, guys. It's not that you're losing sleep. It's that you're gaining TV time. And so a couple, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, I had this time and I saw that Barbie had come out on HBO. I'm like, oh, let's watch Barbie. I hadn't seen it yet. I heard a bunch of stuff about it. And so I'm watching like the first 15 minutes of the show and I'm like, what am I watching? This is surreal. This is odd. This is not where I expected any of this to go. And it begins, right? It, it, don't worry, this isn't going to ruin much for you. It begins with like this opening Barbie dance singing montage. She's going through Barbie world and you're like, okay, what? why is everyone obsessed with this movie? This seems really sunshines and rainbows, and it seemed Barbie, right? And then Barbie's at a dance party, and she's dancing with all her friends, and all of a sudden, she looks over, and she goes, guys, do you ever think about death? It's like record scratch, and all of a sudden, Barbie goes into this existential crisis of like, wait, who am I, and why do I, right? But it's this perfect picture, and I like immediately knew, oh my gosh, I'm going to love this movie, because isn't that exactly the life we live? Right, we go through our lives with all of the veneer, all of the pretty stuff, all of the shiny stuff, all the Instagrammable stuff that we want to put out there and we want to show the world, and we're just pretending that like, tomorrow is just going to be a little bit better. I probably, if I could just get through today, then tomorrow is going to get better. The diet starts tomorrow, right, guys? I'll get my cholesterol under control tomorrow. I will whatever tomorrow. I just need to get through this. And we don't often stop and think about death, the inescapable reality that tomorrow is one day closer to your death day. (laughs) Now, this sounds really morbid, 
And yet we are insulated from this in a way that humanity has not been insulated in for most of its history. That we live in a very small window of history, like in the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 decades, where we've gotten to experience a level of prosperity and a level of like, hey, next decade is actually going to be better. The next generation is actually going to be healthier and wealthier and happier. And all of a sudden, the last 10 years have smacked us in the mouth in that regard. And part of why we've been thrown into such a tailspin is because at some level we forgot, oh yeah, this is all headed towards death anyways. No matter how much money you slap on it, no matter how many abs you slap on it, no matter how many vacations to Disney World you slap on it, no matter how much you throw in the 401k or on the like diplomas on your wall or like whatever it is that you think is gonna like help you escape this reality, it's there. And it creeps in in really inconvenient ways and at really inconvenient times and people around us die. And we go to their funerals and we're like confronted with this, but we say weird things at the funerals to like, ah, it's fine. They're in a better place. God has a plan. This must be what God wanted. Well, God's gained another angel. And we say all these things to distance ourselves from this morbid reality. I want to talk about death for a moment. What does Ephesians mean? You were dead. Were we? I don't know. Last time I checked, I'm still alive. I think. You're still alive. I think. Unless we're living in a simulation. We'll pull on that thread some other day. So when the scriptures talk about death, when we look at the theology of death, I want to point out three really important ideas that can help us here. The first and really the big one, the main one, is understanding that death is primarily separation. So when, um, when a human being dies, their body goes into the ground or is cremated or whatever, and we would say, like popularly in our Christian theology would say, and their soul goes up to heaven. And the question I would ask is, are they dead? And you would respond with a meek and unenthusiastic, yes, right, good, perfect. Yes, they're dead. And so their soul is in the presence of heaven, or in the presence of Jesus in heaven, and they are dead because their body is rotting in a box in the ground. Their soul and their body are separated, right? So death is separation. And it's not until their soul and their body are reunited that we would say, yes, alive, right? So when Jesus dies on the cross, when Jesus undergoes death, Jesus' body ceases to live and his soul is separate. And his soul goes maybe to hell, maybe somewhere else, maybe to sleep. I don't know, another question for another day. But it's not until his soul and his body come back together and God reanimates the person, the body of Jesus that we say, Jesus is alive. Are you with me? So death is separation. But it's not just material separation. So it's not just separation from our, of our souls from our body. Death is separation from God's self. So you go back to Genesis and you look at God creates humanity for relationship with himself and with one another. We were created for love. And when humanity chooses to, um, to, to sever that relationship, to separate themselves from God and God's will in the world, God tells them, on the day that you do this, you will die. 
And yet, humanity goes on to live for like 758 years. Another thing we'll deal with another day, okay? Adam and Eve don't drop dead. And yet, they experience something that the scriptures say is itself death, which is separation from God, who is life, who is love, who is light. Are are you with me? So when humanity distanced themselves from the source of life, humanity severed themselves from life itself, life himself. And so what Ephesians says here is when it says, hey, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, is not that your body is in a box in the ground, but instead is that you are existing in a reality where you are severed from the source of goodness and the source of life and the source of light that exists in the cosmos. You're dead. And that somehow your behavior is contributing to this. But death also does a second thing. Death is deanimating. Right? So when we lose, when we sever ourselves from the source of life, we lose the ability to actually really live the lives we were meant to live. When we sever ourselves from the source of love, the God of love, We sever ourselves from the ability to really fully love the way that humans were meant to fully love. And so so, um, the scriptures will talk about death in the the language of deanimation and life in the language of animation that you are being breathed life into so that you come alive, right? And so what we find here is that death is primarily a relational problem. Even when our body goes down into a box and our soul floats up to wherever, heaven or whatever, or the other place, (laughs) death strips from us the ability to be and do that which is at the core of humanity, to know and be known by others, to know and be known by God in an embodied way. And the pain we feel when we lose a loved one, the pain I often feel as I contemplate my own death. Do y'all not do that? Is that that's just a me thing? Uh, don't worry, I'm in therapy. It's fine. <laughs> but I think that pain is actually has everything to do with the reality that one day I'm going to be severed from the people that I love. And I won't get to love them in the way that I was created to love them anymore. Right, so we, we might say, oh, I've lost a loved one and uh, they'll always have a place in my heart. But that is very different than being able to embrace them, to hold them, to laugh with them, to eat with them, to enjoy them. So death is deanimating. It is sucking the life out of us rather than enlivening us. And so then lastly, death is a decay of that which is good. It's a violation of what the Old Testament calls shalom. This is traditionally translated as peace. Uh, In in the Hebrew mind, it wasn't just peace as in like the absence of conflict, though it absolutely does include that. It's peace in the sense of like flourishing, wholeness, robust blessing. And so if we're on this spectrum, to experience shalom is to experience like blessings on blessings on blessings. To move away from flourishing, to move away from peace is to experience what the Old Testament describes as cursing, death, decay, uncreation. 
And Ephesians lets us in on this fact that we have contributed to this. That the destruction, the decay, the uncreation is not all our fault, right? But that we don't get to wash our hands clean and say, I have nothing to do with any of this. And we're suddenly let in on this fact in verse 2. This is also not just our autonomous choice, right? So most of us have heard the variation of the gospel that says, hey, look, you've made some bad decisions. Jesus is forgiving you from those bad decisions so that you can go and be with him forever in heaven uh, on the day that you die. But what if it's not just about bad decisions? Look at verse 2. You previously walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So Ephesians introduces us to another player on the stage, the prince of the power of the air. Know him? <laughs> this is not an a overly familiar title. This is the, one of the titles for Satan, uh, Lucifer, the deceiver. And notice the way that he is playing on words here. So in in Ephesians 1, there is Christ who is enthroned in the heavens over all things. And then you have the Antichrist, the prince of the power of the air. He's not the prince of the heavens, and yet he is somehow in charge of certain things in the world in ways that impact us. And that you have the Holy Spirit that is at work through the sons who have been adopted in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And then you have the prince of the power of the heirs spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience in the world. And so we realize that we are also living under a heavy imposing hand of this entity, this power, this force. And it means that we live our lives following a certain path. Right? You walked according to the age of this world. And this is the reign, the power, the influence in the world under which we find ourselves. So I go back to my question, is God in control? Uh, watch this. I, I know s- some of you have like grown up with a certain theology, like, hey, look, God is uh, completely sovereign and like super sovereign theology, right? You've sinned, but that's actually really what God wanted because God was gonna send Jesus so that he could just make his glory known, right? Something, some version of this. Here's the problem with that. If you are doing what God wants you to do, how can we call that sin? How can we call you doing what God wants you to do disobedience? So, so like by necessity, There has to be something that God has decided I'm not going to be in control of if he's allowing us to do something other than what he wants in the world. You you with me? When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he teaches them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your desire happen here the way that it's happening there. So there is some level of chaos that exists in our world. Now, for a lot of you, that's terrifying. You're like, whoa, 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 you just took a theology away from me that was really important to me. Everything happens for a reason. This all really matters, right? 
uh, one, like there's room to disagree with me on this. <clears throat> I obviously don't disagree with me on this, but that's okay. And I have a microphone, that's unfortunate, but here we are. <laughs> but can I offer to you why this is actually really freeing? Because now we don't have to attribute absolute evil to God. When something unmentionable happens to a child, we don't have to go, well, that's just God's plan. Everything happens for a reason. When we experience the unthinkable, and for many of us, we experience it over and over and over and over again. You don't have to ask God, why did you do this to me? You can rightly ask God, where are you in this? That's fair. The Psalms is filled with that question. But we no longer have to attribute evil to God. We no longer have to attribute chaos to God. Now, some of you aren't convinced. Let me convince you. I'm not going to, but I'm gonna try. Uh, so this word here for the, the, the path of the world here in verse two, uh, the, the Greek word is a word you all know. It's cosmos, right? You've heard that word before. Um, and it's the same word that Paul actually uses in chapter one when he's describing Jesus's reign over the cosmos. So he talks about how Jesus is in charge, has authority, is sovereign over the cosmos in chapter one. And then in chapter two, something's changed, something's happened. And by chapter two, verse two, suddenly the cosmos is in chaos where the prince of the power of the air is in charge. What is he doing? He's telling the story of creation. Genesis chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth, verse two, and the earth is formless and void, right? That's a Hebrew fancy way of saying the earth was filled with chaos, so much so that the, uh, the sea deity, Yom, uh, the sea, was a deity that was known for her chaos. No other deity could control the sea. And how does God confront the chaos of the sea in the creation story? The Spirit of God danced upon the surface of the sea and said, let there be. Genesis chapter one, verses one, two, and three lets you in on who this God is and what this God does. This God is not a micromanager. This is a God who enters into the chaos of the world and brings order to it, who enters into the ugliness of the world and brings beauty to it, who, yes, even enters into the death of the world and brings it back to life. This is the story of Genesis it's also the story of the flood. It's also the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it is very much the pattern of life we find ourselves in. And it's something that's very important to me, if you can't tell. <laughs> I grew up in a church tradition that I was told that if I believed in Jesus hard enough, everything would go well. Everything would go right. I would prosper. I would succeed. Follow these rules, and this will go this way. I didn't grow up in a church tradition that taught me the way of Jesus. That, that perfect obedience to God leads to death at the hands of the state. 
leads to rejection by your best friends. Leads to shame, crucifixion. I didn't hear that story, and yet it's the story that Ephesians tells us. It's the story that Lent tells us. And so at some level, the cosmos is in a state of decay. Now, I want, I want to be very clear here. I am pulling the pendulum like way far over here. What I am not saying is that God has lost control or that God has no control over anything. That's not what I'm saying at all. Right, Ephesians 1, I believe is actually really true, that Jesus is enthroned over the cosmos and just has not played out entering into the, the earthly realities and insisting that the kingdom of God be what it is in our world. Right, the will of heaven has not yet been done on earth, but it will be. And this age of chaos that we live in has a director that sets an agenda of the chaos and power players that work in it. And this is the energizing force of our world. Uh, What Ephesians says, the force that's at work in the sons of disobedience. It's why if you really, really want to get ahead, you should cheat. If you really, really want to get ahead, you should trample on other people. If you really, really want to make a name for yourself, you should do whatever it takes at all costs. If you really, really want to build a big, successful brand church, then you should rule with an iron fist and blah, 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 right? I'm not saying that all big churches are that, but we've seen that play out over and over and over again. And yet the way of Jesus is small, it's weak, it's often very ineffective, (laughs) but it's faithful. It's life-giving. It's filled with peace. And so what Ephesians does for us is it reminds us of the world we came out of and very soon is going to direct us towards the world that we are now as followers of Jesus living in. But this mode of existence in this chaotic cosmos is a mode that is separated from the God of love. And so we function and operate and live and behave in ways that are unloving, even unintentional ways that are unloving. Look at verse 3. Right? Sons of disobedience. Among them, these sons of disobedience, we too all All previously lived, right? So in in Paul's mind, he's writing to a bunch of non-Hebrews, and he's telling them, hey, even my people, the Jewish people, were complicit. We are also sons of... So this isn't a Jew and Gentile thing. This is a humanity thing. We were all... We all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the rest. Uh, There's a lot here. I'm not going to unpack all of it. I want to unpack a couple of really key things that I think will be helpful to you because a lot of us hear this verse and what we hear is, you were born a piece of garbage. God really, really hates you. You better figure it out so that God can stop hating you. Or God's at least really, really angry with you. Like, yeah, he really wants to love you, but gosh, you're a piece of garbage and so he's got to smite you or else. 
I would challenge us to read this in a different way. So yes, it is saying, hey, we were willing participants in this. When we followed our desires versus the desires of God, this tends to be the way it always goes. There is no like, you know, I'm just independent from God and also independent from the prince of the power of the air, just doing me, right? So doing me always ends to chaos and destruction, it would seem. Cain was just doing me. I'm just doing me. Abel, don't worry about this rock. This rock's for nothing. (laughs) Um, so then what do we do with this? I want to hone in on this phrase, you are by nature children of wrath. Because what we hear when we, when we read that is you are by nature children of God's wrath. You were born with God's bullseye on your forehead is the way that I've heard it said. And yet, back up. When's the last time we saw children of anything in this verse? What was the last verse? At the end of the last verse, sons of disobedience... Fast forward a few words, sons of wrath. So were the sons of disobedience sons who were born into disobedience upon them? Or were they sons who followed a pattern of disobedience? Right? In other words, here's what I'm suggesting and what many other New Testament scholars are suggesting. Notice that God is nowhere in and around this word wrath. Some of you are like looking at it again, like, no, no, I, I know I read it in there. It was in there, right? It's God's wrath, right? God didn't tell you that. Ephesians didn't tell you that that was God's wrath. Someone else told you that was God's wrath. So then whose wrath is it? It's our own. Right, so read it this way. You are by nature a wrathful person. You are by nature unforgiving. You are by nature controlling. You are by nature prideful. You are by nature arrogant. You are by nature, right, fill in whatever wrathful sort of thing. But the, the picture here is that we lived in such ways that we were perpetuating the chaos. So we're both victims to the chaos. We're also perpetuating the chaos for others and for ourselves. That is the wrath. The wrath is not God intervening and like punching us. The wrath is actually the opposite. The wrath is God sitting back and not intervening and letting things spiral. Very different picture. Um, If you have questions about any of this, go to our Instagram page. We'll put up a thing. Hey, what questions do you have about the sermon? And I think I'll answer them. I've got a backlog of questions I'm supposed to answer, but... The house got the flu this week, so that didn't happen, but I'll get to those. (laughs) Sons of disobedience is parallel with children of wrath. Children of can describe lived imitation. You are following this pattern. So uh, to illustrate this, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 8 when he talks to the Pharisees and says, you are sons of the devil. He's not saying, you know what? Your dad's the devil and he got with your mom. Like that's as much of a slam as that would have been. (laughs) Not what he means. What he means is, is you don't follow Abraham in John 8. You don't follow the way of life that Abraham gave you. You follow the way of life that Satan, the deceiver, gave you and you deceive. He's calling them, it's a fancy way of calling them a bunch of liars. 
and a bunch of murderers, because like a few verses later, like, why are you trying to kill me? This phrase, sons of, is about imitation. It's about how you're living. And so the wrath is not God's wrath on us. It is we are living lives where we are imitating and perpetuating wrath in the world, right? Just like everybody else. This is how the verse ends, just as the rest. Okay. I hope that was maybe a little bit helpful. Probably uh, answered one question and made created 10 more, which is great. The last thing I want to make a note of is this idea of our desires of our flesh. I like this language, and I apologize, I can't remember exactly who I got this from. But the, the desires of our flesh that lead to this pattern of living are disordered dispositions. Disordered dispositions that show up in a pattern of behavior. Disordered dispositions that show up in a pattern of behavior. Right, so here's where we're going with this. Jesus' invitation is to come and follow him. When we follow Jesus, Jesus is inviting us to follow him in a certain way. To like actually show up in the world a certain way. To do things in a certain way. And those things are not surprises to you, right? They are forgive, love. Enter into patience and gentleness and goodness. Seek justice. Also seek mercy. Pursue uh, deep intimacy with God and pursue deep intimacy with one another. And when we think about flourishing, when we think about peace, when we think about the opposite of wrath, oh yeah, that makes sense. And so I want to leave you with a couple of ideas to reflect on this week. The first is this. Um, I got this from Kate Bowler, I believe is her name. Is that right? Kate Bowler. Thank you. I looked at Todd because Todd knew. Um, So she's a a historian at Yale, and she did like a whole big research paper on the health and prosperity gospel. She was like looking at the history of the health and prosperity church. And as she's like doing this big research, um, she gets like stage four cancer. And is now confronted with like the very thing she's researching. Like, does God heal us when we ask him to? And what if he doesn't? And what do we do with all of that? And so she has this to say. Um, We have convinced ourselves that life is a progression towards the better. That if we just make different choices, life will be better for us. But I've come to realize life is not a series of choices, but so often things that just happen to us. Cancer, mental health, betrayal, lost jobs, a pandemic, death. That these events are not necessarily from God, nor do they communicate to us what God thinks about us. So I want to invite you just to consider that idea this week. What if there's a certain level of chaos at work in the world, and that chaos has nothing to say about what God thinks of me. Uh, Maybe say it this way. When I go out in the world, I'm gonna experience a certain level of chaos, a certain level of injustice, a certain level of wrath. Is that story true about who God is and what God thinks about me? Or is the story of God entering into creation itself, dying on a cross for the sin and the wrath of humanity, 
and being resurrected by the Spirit of God, is that the story that's true about what God thinks about me? Uh, number two, I hope you're writing these down. Just kidding. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> I'm here to amuse myself, ladies and gentlemen. I believe that part of what Jesus is inviting us into is he's inviting us out of patterns of life of chaos. He invites us out, invites us instead to follow him. And this often leads us to places that we would rather not go if we had the choice. So my question is, are you willing to follow Jesus where he is actually leading you in your life? Right, I know, I know there's the Bible answer. Yes, I am, right. <laughs> really sit with that question and ask yourself why. Pray through that question. And then lastly, if we're being honest about who we are and the lives we live, and it, this really gives us freedom to actually be loved by God who relentlessly chooses us, even in our worst moments, how might this change everything for us? Right, maybe put another way, if I allowed myself to be fully honest with God about who I am, what I've done, whatever my doubts are, whatever my insecurities are, whatever my right, hang-ups are, could that actually free me up to be loved by God? And how might that change how I show up in the world? Food for thought. Um, so at this point, we're going to celebrate a picture of so much of what we've been talking about here this morning. So there's this story of a God who invites us out of this chaos, a God who's broken into this chaos on our behalf and has said, hey, look, your story is now Jesus's story. Your story is the story of God entering into the world, becoming one of you, like you, even dying like you. A God who has entered into the cursing and the wrath and the hell of life for you. And a God who is resurrected so that you too could be joined with him and resurrected with him. There's gonna be two um, that are entering into that story this morning in the waters of baptism. Um, so normally, we could do this in a number of different ways. Um, one of the things that I wanna invite us to do, I recently heard someone explain the waters of baptism as a single water, right? There's, there's, there's one baptism. And we've all, if we've, been, if we've been baptized, we've all been baptized into that one baptism. And that baptism is not ours, it's actually Christ's. And so at the waters of baptism, Jesus is baptized, and as he's being baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on the waters of baptism and descends upon Jesus, and the Father breaks open the skies and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so this morning, we get to see Sydney and Alex enter the waters of Jesus' baptism. And the Holy Spirit is going to descend upon them, and the Father is going to look upon them and say, my son and my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. I wanna invite you to remember your baptism. That this is not just their baptism, it's also, in, a, in an essence, part of your baptism as well. And if you've not been baptized, I want to offer you, extend the invitation to consider and reflect on what this means, and if you would like to be a part of it.
thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.